Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The leading economic index was released today. It came in a little bit better than expected at 1.1%. Consensus was for 1%. Let's get some color under the hood there. We can do that with Ottoman Ozeldrum, Senior Director of Economic Research at the Conference Board. He got his PhD in economics in Happy Valley at Penn State. So we welcome Ottoman. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here. What did you see in your numbers this morning? Again, a little bit better than expected. Uh, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, the LEI rose uh, pretty sharply this morning. Um, overall, the trend in the leading indicators is uh, still pointing to a gathering momentum in the economy. So uh, the expansion is to uh, continue into the first half of uh, 2022. But talk to us about inflation. I mean, we're hearing from Senator Joe Manchin, inflation is the biggest threat. Do you see that as a threat to hurt the consumer and any pullback in consumer spending? Yeah, inflation uh, does pose uh, one of those risks uh, in the outlook, um, and it directly affects uh, consumers' purchasing power, so a uh, pullback in, in spending, um, and uh, consumers' sort of outlook uh, on uh, the economy has been worsening uh, throughout the fall, largely because of uh, what's, what's happening in their wallets. Uh, so that does pose a risk, and um, the Fed, of course, has been responding to that um, and uh, trying to cool down the economy, and uh, uh, that will possibly bring the economy back to a more sustainable but healthy uh, growth rate, um, and uh, we'll begin to see that in the leading indicators. So, Ottoman, I guess you know one of the issues here is just uh, the consumer here, and we've got this uh, Omicron variant here. How do you think that's going to impact, if at all, kind of the the uh, economy in 2022? Yeah, that's the uh, other large uh, risk that's looming in the outlook. Uh, so COVID-19, we were already expecting a winter wave. Uh, I think the Omicron uh, complicates uh, the matter a little bit more uh, in terms of how much it's going to impact uh, it does feel like deja vu. Uh, you know, we've, we've been through these waves before, but I think the difference now is that, you know, we have the vaccines uh, and uh, more reliable treatments. So, um, you know, if the public health aspect can be contained um, and managed, uh, perhaps, um, you know, it doesn't uh, pose a, a huge economic risk uh, for the economic outlook. Um, so uh, to the extent that, um, you know, we don't go into these uh, significant large-scale lockdowns, uh, you know, perhaps we can weather this winter wave of COVID-19. What are you hearing about, you know, not only really expectations for the next year, but three, five years out, particularly in the face of what could be a potential rate hike or three or four in the next year? How is that affecting some of the economics and consumer sentiment? Um, well, longer, uh, longer horizon, um, you know, we are seeing kind of, uh, you know, healthy, robust economic growth rates, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, 
um, the fundamental uh, sort of supply-demand relationship uh, is, you know, working in the U.S. economy, uh, whether you look at consumer uh, spending or labor markets. Um, you know, if we can weather these risks in the next three to five years, you know, perhaps inflation doesn't become a persistent feature of the economy and it can be, uh, those risks can be, can be handled. So, Ottoman, it seems like most shoppers are finding generally what they want here for this holiday shopping season. And that's kind of put the supply chain concerns maybe a little bit on the back burner. But I'm looking at Map Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. I still see lots of ships docked off uh, the ports of Los Angeles and Savannah. How big of an issue is that for you as you think about your 2022 outlook? Yeah, the supply chain uh, disruptions, um, uh, you know, have have been pushing up prices, and we do expect um, those uh, to resolve in the longer term. But I think in the uh, near term, next year, uh, we will continue to see some of those bottlenecks um, and uh, the volatility and disruptions in in prices. Uh, partly a, a matter of this, uh, you know, mismatch between the supply and and de- uh, demand and uh, the inability to deliver. On time, um, uh, but eventually, you know, they will be resolved in the longer term. But I think in some sectors, uh, we are going to continue to see those. And I'm thinking specifically of, you know, uh, motor vehicles and semiconductors used in the automobiles and and so on. That might take longer to resolve because you know you need more investment in those areas. All right, Ottoman, thank you so much for joining us here, Ottoman Alzadrum, Senior Director of Economic Research for the Conference Board. Conference Board reported their leading economic index uh, for the month of November came in at 1.1% positive versus a consensus of 1%. So again, still some positive uh, news out there in the economy uh, led by the consumer. Supply chain, it's been an issue really since the majority of this pandemic and the economic disruption. And then the reopening really exposed some of the shortcomings in this global just-in-time economy. Let's get the latest uh, on our supply chain issues. We can do that with Dr. Lisa Williams, Chief Executive Officer of World of EPI. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems like this supply chain challenge, A, it's a global issue, but it seems to be lingering here maybe a little bit longer than some people thought. Give us your view of kind of where we are on this challenge. Uh, Good morning, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. You are spot on. You're right. The global crisis is lingering on more than we'd like, and it's because of so many different issues, Uh, one of which is, of course, the variance with COVID. You know, until we get COVID under control, we're going to continue to see a slowdown of supply. And because of COVID previously, there is an increase in pent-up demand and, in some cases, income. So we have a shortage of products. Uh, uh, slowed down supply chain, pent up demand. That right there shows the core issue related to the supply chain crisis. We have a port question to ask you. I've been fascinated by this. We've been out several times to the port of Long Beach and the port of LA and interviewed those executive directors. And they continue to say that things are getting better. But what we're also hearing is that they're just holding out ships outside the area where we're counting. So ships look like they're going down, but we're just doing a better job of changing the optics. What are you hearing about if things actually are getting better or not? 
Taylor, that's a brilliant observation. You are right. It's looking better, <laughs> but there's still some of the same core issues. There is a reduction or a lack of personnel to help um, drivers, truck drivers. There is a shortage of chassis equipment. So it's kind of a whack-a-mole problem with the port, right? It's like there's a delay coming in uh, of the ships from Asia. Then once they get here, it's finding the personnel and the equipment to move it uh, from the port into the warehouse. So it's a multifaceted challenge that we're still trying to handle. So you're right. There is a slight short-term improvement, slight short-term improvement. I want to stress that. But it is certainly nothing that is going to come to an end or bring this crisis to a quick and speedy end. So to that question, uh, Lisa, what in your view is probably a reasonable time frame to get back to some level of normalcy in terms of supply chain? Well, Paul, you know, we know this is unprecedented. And because of that, we can't really look to history to give us much guidance, unfortunately. It's going to depend upon getting a handle on COVID. It's going to depend upon getting supplies to the ingredients that we need. It's going to depend on finding the right containers, not just containers in terms of cargo containers, but containers for the bottles of the products that we uh, need every day. All of those different challenges is why we're seeing what we're seeing. So the question is, when do we think we'll see an end to all of those different facets? I don't know. But what I do believe strongly is that we will see a change around 2023 generally, assuming we can get COVID under control. But in the beverage industry, I see it actually being longer, more like 2026. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's that's five years away, (laughs) Paul. So talk to us then about, given the longevity of the timelines you just laid out, has anything changed permanently, structurally, within supply chain issues? Or can we bounce back? You know, what does the new normal look like? Taylor, again, the new normal is going to be something unusual for us. Um, it is, we are going to back back, bounce back, because we are resilient people and we have that desire. So I do believe we will bounce back. The timing of that, however, could be a lot longer than any of us prefer. And it's going to be, again, until we can get COVID under control, that's like, for example, being a toy manufacturer, we ship the majority of our products from Asia. Asia's uh, largest port is the MTN. They have a zero tolerance for COVID. So if one person comes down with COVID, they shut things down. You can see right there the rippling effect that that's having. Then once they finally do get the container on a ship, it gets here. And as we just talked about, there's a shortage of containers. There's a shortage of chassis. There's a shortage of workers. There's a shortage of warehouse space. All of that continues to the length of our supply chain and adding to the supply chain crisis. So, like I said, it's a multifaceted problem that we have to address, but I do believe the core of it is dealing with the COVID pandemic. Dr. Lisa Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts and insights which into a lingering, lingering economic challenge for the global economy in terms of supply chain uh, bottlenecks, again, around the globe. Dr. Lisa Williams, Chief Executive Officer uh, of World of EPI. All right, let's switch gears and take a look at retail. We're, we're just in the thick right at the very end of this holiday shopping 
season. Lots of uh, money being spent there. The consumer has a lot of cash uh, putting that money to work. Let's check in with Andrew Rostami, uh, head of Citizens Pay at Citizens Bank. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here. There's a concept that I've been hearing about for the last six to maybe 12 months that's a little bit new. Buy now, pay later. What does that mean to you and what does that mean to the retail space? Yeah, no, thanks, and Thanks for uh, having me on the show here. Yeah, I mean, buy now, pay later is really about, um, you know, helping a consumer spread out their payments, right? And so, you know, it's about taking a large purchase and chopping that up into smaller payments, um, fixed monthly payments, similar to what you would do maybe with a car purchase. And uh, sometimes that has no interest at all, right? And so it can be a very responsible thing uh, for a consumer and why they're uh, really gravitating to towards that type of product. Okay, on the flip side of that, though, it was interesting. Last week, you had the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just asked for an inquiry into some of these buy now, pay later companies of just asking to make sure that consumers really know what it is. Do they know their debt burden? What are some of the regulatory headwinds that you see, though, from this? Yeah, no, we we really think that's a great thing that the CFPB is doing. Um, You really want to make sure you're doing it responsibly, right? And so, um, at Citizens Pay, we're a fintech, but we're within a regulated bank, uh, which has been fantastic, right? So you're doing things like underwriting the consumer, making sure that they have the right, not just credit profile, but they have the right income uh, to be able to afford the purchase. Uh, you're working with the credit bureaus such that that debt is reported back to the bureaus such that all lenders uh, can take a look at that. So those are the types of things you really want to make sure you're doing to put the consumer right on the right footing. So, Andrew, you know, when you talk to your retail clients, how are they thinking about supply chain issues? Because we talked to someone in the supply chain just earlier today and suggesting that this is going to stretch well into next year and maybe even longer. Is that what you're hearing from your customers? Yeah, it it, it absolutely has been a challenge. Um, Obviously, some um, clients have different um, ownership over the supply chain, um, right, based on their scale. But in general, it's it's definitely been a challenge, and um, you know I think the real um, the only real um, you know panacea really is just kind of finding new ways uh, to delight the consumer and provide growth, right? So in addition to providing transparency on what shipping times may be, um, finding new ways um, really to provide other types of um, you know purchases uh, for those consumers, um, you know as it, it as it looks like it will uh, you know unfortunately continue. I'm also really curious about what you're seeing anecdotally from the consumer. Are basket size going up because prices are higher and we're experiencing inflation? Or are we actually buying more items even if the prices aren't going up, right? What What is that yeah. telling you? Yeah, we've, we've seen, um, you know, without going into too much detail, I mean, the spend uh, this year is certainly higher than last year and certainly higher than pre-pandemic. And when you look at that across categories, it really is broad-based. Uh, save one or two categories, essentially all categories are up. Uh, we are seeing both frequency as well as a higher uh, ticket size in the basket. And you know, that is going back to buy now, pay later, or point of sale financing. That is uh, what can really support that, right, um, where you can really make that uh, purchase more responsibly. So we are seeing both of those trends. But on an inflation-adjusted basis, are basket sizes still higher? Is the consumer actually stronger? Yeah, I mean, a- again, from what we can see, it does, you know, appear, uh, you know, to be that way. Um, and then, you know, to your point, the consumer strength 
still looks pretty solid, um, right? The balance parking that's happening that we see in deposit accounts um, is still, uh, you know, you know, relatively strong, right? So it would uh, indicate some pretty good uh, underlying strength in the consumer still. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your thoughts. Andrew Rostami, head of Citizens Pay. Uh, that's part of Citizens Bank, giving us uh, the lay of the land on all things retail. So we've got central bankers around the globe either raising rates as we speak or talking about raising rates in the near future. Uh, yet I look at a 10-year at 1.378%. Should I tempt you with the one global central bank who's taking the opposite of yes, that? With yes, yes. 20% inflation? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Question is, what do you do in that kind of environment on the fixed income side of the ledger? Let's bring in a professional who does this for a living. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Federated Hermes. Uh, RJ, thanks so much for joining us here. How are you guys thinking about 2022? And again, a, an environment where presumably uh, central bankers around the world are going to be pushing up rates. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, we continue to believe that rates had to go higher, that the pivot that we're now seeing uh, at the Fed and other developed countries, central banks and developing countries, uh, was necessary. The simple fact of the matter is the, the dynamic of the pandemic, the on-again, off-again economy, the restart, the logistical supply chain problems, they've all added up to a level of inflation that requires central bank attention, and now they're speaking to that, uh, as well as acting uh, with, with acceleration of the taper. Uh, there are a lot of cross-currents, though. The fiscal policy sequentially is going to become less stimulative. Uh, the news this morning from Senator Manchin basically bailing on the Build Back Better plan is another point in that direction. Um, so I wouldn't be worried that we're about to go through skyrocketing rates. I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, and then the Omicron slash Delta wave that we're all dealing with is another sort of bond-friendly development. So, you know, it's sort of clear as mud, but I think that the simple fact of the matter is we do believe yields will be somewhat higher than they are today, but there's plenty of reasons not to uh, go max short at this point in time. Yeah. Talk to us about that, RJ, because it's so interesting when, as Paul was saying, the call was 2% yields, and we're back down below a 140 on the 10-year and below 2%, well below 2% on the 30-year. Is it that we have a central bank who's now less tolerant of inflation and so long-term we're thinking lower growth, lower inflation, or is this some technicals? Uh, I think that there's a, a number of factors out there. First of all, the, the, the Fed worked really hard to get many to accept the idea that part of this inflation was transitory. That word now has basically been banned. Um, so let's use a different one. That's probably not as clear, clearly implying that it would be brief. Uh, episodic. Uh, I think there's something episodic about this inflation, but that's not explaining all of it. Um, I think the fact that the Fed is, is pivoted, has pivoted in the hawkish direction has prompted some fears that they might overdo it. I mean, it's remarkable how the distance between the dots and the market's implied levels of short rates out a year, two, three years from now, it's pretty stark. Uh, obviously, there's a mixed view on how fast the economy can grow and how much the economy can tolerate a Fed tightening cycle. Uh, it remains to be seen, however, how this will unfold. It makes it sort of tough for the bond managers of the world. I do think there's some silver lining. For people who are afraid that they're going to experience massive bond losses, 
they have to remember you've already experienced losses on the Barclays aggregate, the U.S. Treasury index. They're all down one over two percent on the year. Uh, it's quite possible that as yields rise in the year to come, uh, I expect returns to be low. That's for sure. Um, but some of the rising rate dynamic is behind us. And the question is, where is that terminal rate? The market's pricing a very low terminal rate. We think it's probably a little too low. We're a little short as a result. That's how we're dealing with this sort of foggy picture in front of us. RJ, are you, of the, are you in the camp that central banks perhaps have been moving too slow on inflation? Um, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think the simple fact of the matter is that the Fed, in other eras, the Fed wouldn't have accelerated the taper. They would have just stopped buying bonds. Uh, there, there's abundant reasons to argue that they, that they should do that, and they should have done that at the last meeting. But in the current central banking framework, the Fed doesn't like to surprise the markets. They view that as destabilizing. Mm. Uh, it would unsettle risk assets, which have had, been on a tear. So I think the Fed has to move very sensitively, gingerly is probably a better word, uh, in, in their pivot. So far, they've pulled it off. It's interesting that risk assets are now struggling because I think people are concerned about the idea of a policy error, that the Fed's going to over-tighten, that their dots are too aggressive, the economy can't take it, like I was saying before. But yeah, I think the central banks probably waited a little too long. But can, can you blame them? Uh, the uncertainties that we face as an economy, as a society, keep morphing. Uh, it's hard to, to, to charge forth with great confidence, whether you're a public health official or a monetary policy official, in the context of a world that's changing as the pandemic continues to, 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 to change over time. You know, RJ, we just have about 30 seconds left. When will we know when we are past the point of having to worry about a policy error? That's a great question. I, I, I personally think Chairman Powell laid out a view that if inflation isn't materially declining, you know, mid to late next year from its very high rates that we currently see, um, that's where the Fed might start to get more aggressive. And, and the policy error judgment will only become apparent sort of as it's happening. Recall the fourth quarter of 2018 when the Fed was tightening and the balance sheet yep. was shrinking uh, and the stock markets were, you know, they were screaming uncle. They couldn't take it. Stock market fell like 20% that quarter. Yep. That's yep. when the policy error trade becomes evident. It's sort of real time. All right, RJ, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on the credit markets. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Federated Hermes, giving us his thoughts on these credit markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.